Human rights are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights, once and for all. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. Hi, I'm Hilly. And I'm Nat. And together, we are the Jura Sisters. Today, we'd like to acknowledge that we're recording on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging, and that sovereignty for the land was never ceded. Hey Nat, how have you been going these days? Hilly, I'll be honest, clerkship season is not fun. I um, I have been waking up with the same recurring nightmare that I get absolutely no clerkships and then for some reason am forever in- unemployable. <laughs> you know what? Someone actually told me once that they had a dream that they got negative clerkships. That's not <laughs> impossible, but I feel you, girl. <laughs> it's really stressful, but I have been, you know, trying to focus on getting through it by remembering that um, it's my own journey and there's no point comparing myself to anyone else Um, and just looking after my mental health through going on my stupid daily walks. Stupid little daily walk for your stupid little mental health. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to report that it's okay. I'm not great, but I'm okay. (laughs) That's that's all you really need. And honestly, for anyone who's doing clerkship at the moment, also, if you're not a law, legal sector person, clerkship is essentially, it's just, it's like a paid internship that you do so that you can go into the grad recruitment pool for mostly commercial law firms. But it's so competitive. Like, I honestly can't think of anything else in your time at law school that is more competitive. It's insane. So I guess for anyone who is doing clerkship at the moment, and I actually sent this as a text to Nat the other day, but we wanted to say to you that you're so worthy and wonderful and that no job or clerkship will ever change that. So keep up the great work. Such a cute message to receive. (laughs) Nat, who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Amy Frydenberg. Amy is a partner in the Workplace Relations and Safety Team at Lander and Rogers, and she works predominantly in employment litigation. So she's an accredited specialist in workplace relations law, and she represents her clients in a diverse range of workplace and employment-related matters. But on top of that, Amy is also a mother of two, and she works part-time. She job shares her position with her work wife, Emma Purdue, while looking after two little ones. Amy is so sweet. She was an, a literal joy to talk to. We were both feeling so uplifted and confident after speaking to her. And we hope that you feel the same after listening to this conversation. Because I just feel like as women, there are some questions that really plague us, especially young women breaking into the legal sector. And I think often Nat and I can kind of go around in circles about these big existential lawyer questions <laughs> and we ask them to her and she had the most calm and articulate answers. And I was like, you go girl. 
yeah it was it was a really really great chat so without further ado please enjoy the episode great okay so we can make a start hi amy thanks for joining us hi thanks for having me so tell us a little bit about your job sharing arrangement and how you found that um, kind of partnership journey at Landis and Rogers. Sure. Um, and really, I do want to say thank you for letting me come onto your podcast. I think the, um, the thought and purpose behind it is just fabulous and the concept of women supporting women. So hats off to you girls. And yeah, I'm really proud to be included. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, oh no. thank you. Yeah, thank in, you for coming on. <laughs> in terms of the job share, so I job share at the moment with a colleague of mine, Emma Perdue, and we've worked together at Landon Rogers for over 10 years now. So she was a few years behind me, but we, we both did our graduate year at Landers and have been there ever since. I've been at Landers for 17 and a half years. I like to say I started when I was 10, but um, <laughs> having not been able to go to a hairdresser in Melbourne for a long time, you can probably tell that that's not true. So... <laughs> Um, Emma and I both had our first children around the same time, so just a few months apart. So we took a year of maternity leave each and both wanted to return initially three days a week to work part-time as we're both primary carers for our children. Um, we're both lucky enough to have partners, but we're the primary carers in our households. And having returned to work part-time after our first children, we found it really challenging, um, as a lot of working mothers do particularly in the legal environment uh, where you're working in a high-pressure environment. Um, one's work is often defined by how many billable units of six minutes can be billed in a week. And we've been out of sight and out of mind for a year. So I also found that while it came from a really good place, a lot of the partners would delegate work to me that they felt was part-time-ish. They didn't want to overload me, but it meant I was doing a lot of menial tasks or not the sort of work I wanted to be doing. And I really enjoy the litigious part of my practice. I'm an employment lawyer and I do a lot of litigation and I really enjoy that. But then I found when I did get that work, it meant being available around the clock. So I really couldn't work part-time either. So there was always that constant tension. So we both then had our second children also similar time. And while we were on maternity leave, we started to think about ways we could do things differently. Um, and that's really how the idea of job sharing came about. And we figured, well, if two employment lawyers can't work out a job share arrangement, who can? <laughs> and we were really lucky that our practice group leader and uh, our HR director and the firm generally were really supportive, which is a real credit to them because the concept was rather novel and certainly hadn't been done before at our firm. Well, definitely. I mean, I was saying to Hilly um, earlier today, I actually read an article about you in the AFR and I was like, wow, this is so cool. Um, what a great idea. And I, yeah, I was kind of, it was almost like, oh, I'm surprised this hasn't been done before because it's such a perfect solution. Because it was so novel, were there, I guess, teething issues when starting it? Or, you know, you said the firm was quite supportive. How, how did you broach the idea to them? It sort of was a conversation we started while we were on maternity leave and before we returned to work. We were really focused on not going back to where we were the first time we came back working part-time. So we really started communicating with our practice group leader, Dan, who's just a legend, uh, while we were still on maternity leave. And he really just let us run with it and do what we need to do. So 
Um, one of the strategies we put in place early was that I would work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Emma would work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so that we sort of had continuity of work, but then that one handover day on a Wednesday, which has been really helpful. While we're on maternity leave and before we embarked on it, uh, we did a lot of research using, well, only really a handful of examples we could find, uh, mainly from professional services overseas, where people had implemented similar models, but there wasn't much around. We really struggled to find a lot, but we used what we could to help us sort of set the foundations of our model. One of the biggest teething issues we found was uh, getting people used to working with us as a job share arrangement and not feeling like they had to repeat instructions to both of us or have to remember who works which days. Um, we wanted to make it really seamless for the people we work with, not just clients, but, you know, our colleagues, people who, the partners who we're reporting to, perhaps junior lawyers who are working with us. We wanted to make it as seamless as possible for them. We like to say, you know, it's sort of like, you know, sausages. You don't want to know what goes into them. You just look at the end product. We wanted people just to sort of send work to one of us or talk to one of us and they'd get something back and they didn't need to know what went into it and how it came about. The work just got done and got done well. We, we still encounter some, you know, issues. Most of the time it's when we deviate from the job share. So as probably most law students and lawyers are, typical A-type controlling personalities. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to give up control. When you're working as a job share partner, it's like any partnership or relationship where you need to relinquish some control and have absolute trust in your partner. And what happens sometimes is one of us gets a bit keen to respond to an email or do some work on a day we're not meant to be working. And if we both do it at the same time, it ends up in some overlap or double up. And we still do that sometimes. So I guess my number one advice for anybody embarking on a job share arrangement is you need to be 100% committed and all in because there's no point replacing a part-time part work with a part-time job share arrangement. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I wonder if it will become more common because I think it's quite rare. It sounds like you and Emma have a really great relationship. And I think that would be like quite rare and hard to find in terms of being able to seamlessly have those days that work for each other. In terms of kind of putting together the job share arrangement, you found that you were getting more menial tasks. And this is something that I've heard a lot from women that have come back from maternity leave or that they are working part-time is that they're being given these menial tasks. Why do you think the complex work is redirected away from women that are balancing childcare? Yeah, it is a common issue. And I think, um, as I said before, a lot of it actually did come from a good place. It wasn't coming from a place where people didn't think that, you know, because you're a part-time worker or because you're a working mother, you're not up to it or you're not good enough. It was more about them trying to do the right thing and not overburden you, not wanting to give you tasks that they knew would mean you had to work late or work extra days. So sort of small, discrete tasks that they feel part-time work friendly yeah but really what that meant was they were making the decision for me in terms of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to prioritize my time rather than giving me the opportunity to make that decision for myself so I think that that's part of the problem a lot of it with um look as, as an employment lawyer a lot of advice I give is to clients you know when women go on maternity leave for example and what they're obligations what the employer's obligations are and you know you have to keep their job open for 52 weeks they're entitled to come back to the job they left 
and I've spoken openly about this at my firm, but how I felt when I came back from my first round of maternity leave was I'd worked at the firm for, you know, 10 years already by that stage. I had clients I'd worked with for a long time and were quite close to. And while I was on leave, other lawyers were, you know, looked after those clients for me and took over those files and did that work. And when I came back, those clients and those files didn't come back to me because somebody else had been working on them. And I wasn't the type to go and grab them all back and say, hey, that's mine because I'm just not that sort of person. But I really felt like I had been made redundant in a way and the job I'd left was no longer there because I had to start from scratch by trying to find new clients and find new work and start from the ground up because I didn't have that continuity from when I went on maternity leave to when I returned. And I think that's a big problem as well when you're out of the workforce for a significant period of time. And things have gone on while you're away and those clients had to be serviced and those files had to be serviced that um, you sort of were no longer needed and you need to find a new place for yourself. But what we've done because of that feedback is we've now put in really, at my firm at Landers, we've put in some really good structures in terms of the work people are working on and the clients they're working on before they go on maternity leave to make sure that there's a transition back when they return. You know, small things like, you know, advising those clients, oh, Amy's coming back from maternity leave next month. So, you know, she'll be really excited. Perhaps you can organise a coffee or a catch-up um, when she gets back. So letting the clients know you're coming back and making that transition a little bit more seamless. It's what a so win for Landers. Go I us. Like you just <laughs> must be so proud to be part of a firm that has a, such a, yeah, like a progressive view on this stuff and puts that into practice. Yeah. I mean, I've been really lucky to work somewhere that's been so supportive and really supports flexibility and diversity and progressive thinking. And, you know, the fact that I can be, you know, a part-time job sharing partner is really a testament to the firm being supportive of that. And I also heard that your new office is carbon neutral. So we love that as well. It was very carbon neutral and no one's going there in particular, <laughs> but it is a very lovely office um, and I will enjoy being back there one day. <laughs> I actually, I, um, I'm applying for clerkships or oh, I've put my applications in for clerkships and um, I went to Landers and saw the new office when there was a break in between the lockdowns for um, clerkship. Isn't it great? So pretty. I didn't want to leave. Yeah. Oh, you were, were you there as well, Hilly? Yeah, we were oh, there. It was such it's such a blur that time. Remember they had all that free mineral water? Oh. And they were telling us to take it home. <laughs> I actually still have some. Don't have like little sparkling water taps now. They're great. Right. That's probably more carbon neutral than yeah. having yeah, water bottles. But yeah, I really loved the vibe of that building. Mm. It's a lovely Very building. It's Very really cool. lovely. As a young law student, I feel like, Achille, you might agree with me, there's kind of this perception that you can't have like a successful and fulfilling career and be a mum at the same time. Did you have that perception as well when you were entering, you know, you starting your career? I don't know if I actually thought of it. I feel <laughs> like, and I'm actually in the process at the moment of doing uh seasonal clerk recruitment I'm on the firm's recruitment panel oh. <laughs> I'm so amazed by your generation and how focused you are on well-being and self and I just find it just fascinating and fantastic it really probably wasn't something I was thinking about at your age and in a way it's unfortunate because a lot of people go into careers 
you know, they you put down your preferences when you're 17 and go and start university. And you don't necessarily think about what the future means um, and how that job might fit into how you also perceive your lifestyle or your, you know, family life to be in the future. But in terms of the perception um, of, you know, being able to have a successful career and have kids, unfortunately, it's not necessarily just a perception because I think it's a reality for a lot of mothers in a lot of industries. And once I sort of became more senior as a lawyer and started having my own children, it was something that I did struggle with, the question of whether I could really see myself being the primary carer for my children and a partner at a law firm. Um, and if not, like had my career peaked before I was even 40. So it wasn't that so much that I didn't think I could be a mum and a lawyer. It's just that the examples around me of senior women in the law uh, who had children were pretty much all full-time workers or they officially worked four days but ended up working five days just being paid for four. They certainly weren't doing three. And they were always juggling and always stressed out. And it really didn't look that appealing to me because I've always put a lot of value for myself on being balanced and well-rounded and not stressed and happy. And it's really hard to see yourself as doing something when there's no role modelling of that. And in terms of leadership and being senior, you really need to be able to picture yourself at that table. And I, when I did, when I sort of came back from leave after my second child, I did sort of sit down with my practice group leader and, and ask the question, is there such thing, is there really such thing as a part-time partner? Um, because if there's not, that's fine, but I'd rather know now so I can make an informed decision about what I do. I don't want to, you know, be aiming for something that's, unachievable it's a waste of my time the other issue I guess is that obviously it's generally the mothers that take time out of the workforce for kids and that also places roadblocks on their career progression because they'll always be behind in that time but for myself and look it took a lot of deep personal work but one of the things I came to realize was that a successful career means different things for different people and career goals don't have to have artificial limits on them. So when I had my kids and I looked around and I had peers becoming partners, for example, and people who were years junior to me becoming partners, it would have been really easy to look at that and say, oh, obviously I'm not good enough, I'm not up to it, or I can't make it. But what I did rather was reframe the goal that it wasn't that being a partner wasn't for me, it's just the timing wasn't right for me and my family. And when I looked at my core values and how I wanted to live and work, I had no doubt that my number one value was my family and always would be my family. I could never make work my number one value. So if I became a partner at 40 instead of 30, did it really matter? Because I'd have my time with my children and if my goal was to become a partner, I could do that when the timing worked for us as a family. So, you know, I've given this advice before uh, to, you know, female professionals who are questioning their ambitions because all of a sudden, it's not just about work. They've got other things going on. It's, it's really important to be mindful about your priorities today as well as your professional vision for the future because they don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. I love that. I, I love that idea of visualising for yourself what your own career success means. I think me and Nat were actually having a bit of a similar conversation about that because I guess with you know, clerkship coming up for her and, and I guess me being in first year law really trying to break into the job market. We're both up against some really 
tough challenges and I and I think for us it's easy to look around at people who might be really killing it um Mm -hmm. but but then we kind of circled back and we're like we're really happy with putting time into like investing in ourselves and our mental health um and we also have this amazing podcast that we run and like it's important to define what success means for yourself in a very non-comparative sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they say, you know, you'll never find your self-value externally. So you need to work out what's important for you and then build upon that because you can spend your whole life comparing yourself to others. And the reality is if you're not really uh, working towards your core values, even if you achieved what they're achieving and doing what they're doing you're still not going to be happy so what's the point yeah exactly so talking more about partner and what it means to be um, a partner there were some statistics that came out earlier this year saying that more than 50 percent of uh, the lawyers that are admitted in Australia right now are female and Nat and I have spoken a lot about this and I guess our main question to you is like how long do you think it will be until we see this statistic reflected at the partnership level and, and what can we do to see that happen? Yeah, such a great question and something I talk about a lot. I think the number of female graduates is probably even higher than 50% now. And also I read just this week, I think, that for the first time there are now more female partners in every state and territory in Australia than males. Oh, my gosh, a um, win for women. Yes, but it's, so it's not just more females studying the law there, more women are entering the profession, but they're not staying. Um, and female representation amongst partnerships generally is not even 30%. Uh, Atlanta's, we're top in class, of course. We're just we're just under 50%. Yeah, go so land. We're doing pretty well. But there's clearly a gender drain, Um and that's something that requires significant focus and improvement. And look, I think a lot of it will start with reimagining the traditional ways of working and looking at ways to destigmatize part-time work and break down gender biases. But for me, I think a really big player in all of that will be what men do, not what women do. And it's about men taking up more of the care and responsibilities, accessing parental leave, working more flexibly, Um, because that will do a lot to even the playing field and shift the traditional models. So when you look at, you know, the fact that, you know, only one in 50 men take parental leave and only one out of three men who are eligible for dad or partner pay actually use it, all that does is reinforce the stigma and the challenges that women face. And so really we just need uh, men to come to the table a little bit more in that regard, I think. I like that idea because I feel like women carry such a heavy burden with this stuff already to put it back on them to say you need to find the solution to this partner retention and gender equity I think only makes the load heavier. So I really like that idea, Amy. Um, In terms of the effects of the pandemic, which has in its economic impacts been called the pink recession because of its effect on women. Can you comment on the impact of this pandemic on working women trying to balance the homeschooling and maybe an increase in in domestic demand and their careers? Um, Yeah, sure. It's big. So, (laughs) well, I mean, even before the pandemic, 
women were statistically already more likely to carry the mental and domestic load at home. So when schools close and childcare closes, it's really the women who take that extra load too. Absolutely. And well, if they don't, the gender wage gap certainly reiterates that they should, doesn't it? So um, interestingly, there was a survey conducted last year that found nearly half of men in heterosexual relationships said they did as much, if not more, of the homeschooling than their female partners. But they asked the women and only 3% of them agreed. <laughs> so, um, I mean, anecdotally, anecdotally, you know, women did assume most of the additional domestic load. Like certainly in my household, that's the case. My, my husband's the treasurer of the country and he spent most of the year away. He's, um, he's, from... he's got his own own stuff to do. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I joke, I don't think he's that much help when he's home anyway, but I certainly <laughs> did most of the work while he was away. But also from an economic um, and employment perspective, statistically women were more impacted, um, particularly because they're more likely to be in casual work or recent employees or part-time workers. So um, there are a lot of challenges that the pandemic has put up for women and a lot of setbacks for women, you know, that concept of the pink recession. But to look at it from a more positive lens, I also think the pandemic has done a lot more for flexible work than decades of work in this space. And as I said before, I really hope it encourages more men and people without children for whatever reason to embrace flexible work for their own lifestyle reasons or, you know, they're caring for elderly parents, whatever the case might be, as that will help remove the stigma against mums who work flexibly and work from home. But the fact that we've all been working from home and all been working flexibly for over 18 months and it can work and it's possible, we've all seen that it's possible. I think that that has really shifted the perceptions. And I was talking to an HR director just yesterday who made the comment that she doesn't think she'll ever be asked to write a business case about a flexible work request again, because the business case is just there and already proven itself. And I think that's a real win for women in the workplace. Oh, that makes me really happy to hear those barriers just being removed. And I think that especially applies not just to women, but also people living with either physical or mental disabilities. I, sure. I've read that that's a, re- a really big kind of barrier that's been knocked down because we can see that it is possible to efficiently work from home. There's kind of no excuse not to provide that avenue for a lot of careers. Absolutely. And I guess like anecdotally, so... Um, my dad doesn't listen to the podcast, so don't worry. He won't get offended. But <laughs> he was like the other day, oh, I don't know what everyone's complaining about homeschooling. You know, I would have loved to have homeschooled you girls. It would have been awesome. Obviously, his perspective, he's had, you know, the best experience raising us because I assume that mum would have taken most of the burden. And he's imagining that homeschooling would just be this joyous experience. <laughs> You know what? Homeschooling is has has beautiful elements, um, but it's an impossibility when you're trying to also work at the same time. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, and the kids get over it pretty quickly and need to be back at school with their friends and their teachers. So, I mean, I'm lucky that I have a um, my kids are young, so I've got one in kinder and one in grade one. So, you know. I can actually answer my daughter's math questions, grade one math questions, tick. But, you know, she was doing year nine or 10, it'd be yeah, a real struggle. Yeah. 
And I think the social impact as well, like not having their friends around must be really hard. Yeah, kids get so much out of their, you know, community sport and socialising and all that sort of stuff. And also, um, you know, brothers and sisters can get pretty sick of each other pretty quickly. Um, yeah. You know, I, I negotiate for a living. I get paid to negotiate at work. We're trying to negotiate between a four and six-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back at this pink recession discussion and the impact of the pandemic, I mean, it's obviously had some positive effects, like what you said about flexible working arrangements being so normalised now. What do you think that in this new normal that we're facing, the biggest challenge that women will face in the legal sector moving forward? Mm-hmm. Look, from what I see at the moment, it comes back to the challenge of law firms are very traditional, old school environments. And I think there will be a challenge in reimagining the work of a traditional lawyer in a non-traditional way. Because you can look around a standard partnership table and say, oh, you know, you'll think I'll never make it because I'm not white and male. Well, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to be white and male. Or you can look around the table and think I'll never make it because I can't or I'm not prepared to work 100 hours a week and give my life to this firm. But not feeling that you have to conform to the model you see and firms being and people in leadership being more receptive to the value people can bring to the table beyond traditional, uh, you know, dollars and cents. I think it's also really important to say on this that, again, uh, it's not just about women or working mothers that are missing from those leadership tables. There's a significant lack of diversity generally, which I think will be just as important to address going into the future to make sure that the legal sector has the necessary level of diversity um, in, in the leadership yeah and I when I've been talking about kind of diversity targets and those percentages I keep coming up with this kind of um question that people ask me and I never know how to answer it so I'm wondering if you can help me um when I talk about it doesn't have to be um female partnership but even um diversity in terms of like cultural or ethnic background um in partnership targets if there's like a percentage that firms are striving for to reach in their partnership targets sometimes I've had people say to me oh you know what if there's someone better for the job that doesn't meet this criteria and they get passed up in favor of someone else because you know the firm's trying to meet these diversity targets these percentage Mm -hmm. values What, what do you think about that and um, do you think that that is a real concern? Oh, I don't think that really happens. Um, I don't think that really happens in practice. And there's obviously arguments for and against quotas and they've been well reported. But it's hard to achieve something if you're not striving towards it and you need to know what you're striving towards. And I think a lot of the work can also be done in training for unconscious bias that can be really effective because people do recruit in their image everyone thinks that they're wonderful it's like oh you're just like me you must be great (laughs) so it's um there's a lot of work that can be done in that unconscious bias space I think as well yeah definitely that's a really great approach I actually haven't thought about that I mean like Natalia and I have discussed that quite that topic at some length and I think that's 
yeah, a really, really interesting way to go about it. So during your career, Amy, the Me Too movement has changed the way that women move through the corporate world, many different areas of different industries, but the corporate world especially. What changes have you observed personally and what do you think is still left to be done? Mm, such a big topic. I could do a whole podcast. It is, on the isn't Me Too it? Movement, Look, the Me Too movement really was a revolution. And the legal sector, you know, you could say had its own Me Too movement, commencing with the Dyson Hagen investigation and the flow on from that, including, you know, the subsequent review of sexual harassment in Victorian courts and um, the reviews that came out of that. I mean, people get surprised to hear there's actually been laws against sexual harassment in the workplace for nearly 40 years in Australia. And in fact, I I think Australia was the first country in the world to actually enact legislation making workplace sexual harassment unlawful. Wow. I I did not know that. Yeah. Interesting. So it's actually been unlawful, you know, for your whole life, right? But Double, double my life, actually. Sorry, humble brag. Rub it in, don't you? (laughs) Um, and you know so in my practice I've been writing sexual harassment policies and doing training for clients about this for nearly two decades for your whole life basically (laughs) Um, and the real shift I've seen since the Me Too movement is really the focus on changing culture not just policies so in the past when I was asked by clients to draft policies or do training it was really just about compliance ticking the box you know um, but now organisations are really seeing it as more than that and wanting to create wholesome cultural change. And I think that that is the real key to improving the reality for women in the workplace going forward, um, moving sexual harassment from a compliance, legal and reputational risk to one of prevention where the goal is to actually eliminate sexual harassment and increase gender equality in the workplace. And I've been really pleased to see that shift in dialogue um, from my clients, but also generally out there to affect actual change in that space. Yeah, that's great. I think as Nat, you can probably concur with this, but as someone looking at a career in, in the legal industry, that makes me feel really happy to hear that and to really have confidence in our systems. And I, that must be really rewarding work for you, like not just as a woman but as a lawyer, I think, for you to see that happening. Yeah, um, to see actual change as opposed to, you know, artificial change. And a lot of the work is also about um, empowering everybody to speak up about sexual harassment and moving away from that victim-centric approach where all of the onus is on the victim who for various reasons might not be able to speak up. So for example, um, again, one thing Landers introduced last year and it was reported on in our our own firm sexual harassment policy was the issue of uh, like the no bystander rule. So the obligation is now on everybody to raise issues that they see in the workplace and to call out bad behaviour so that it's not just the victims that have all the onus to do something about it. And that's really empowering. It empowers everybody to speak up if they see something that 
they don't think he's right, but also takes away from that victim-centric approach. And I think that's also part of the cultural change and creating that culture where the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. So everybody takes that responsibility. I love that quote. Yeah. It's a great one. I actually last night just submitted an ethics assignment literally on this topic (laughs) and I was talking about how, you know, we can't be expected um, to understand or even to sympathise with why victims do or don't report Um, and in in order to kind of facilitate a safer working environment, especially in the legal industry, given everything that's been going on, um, the best way to do that is to create a positive obligation for um, lawyers to call out sexual harassment or even just sexism when they see it and and have like an independent regulatory body helping um, deal with that because it's, yeah, something needs to be done, obviously. And absolutely. And, you know, from a legal perspective, actually everybody in the workplace under OHS legislation has a responsibility to ensure a safe workplace. So sexual harassment is a safety issue. And if you see it, you actually have a legal obligation as well as the moral obligation to call it out. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think those approaches really work. I mean, I was at a residential college at Melbourne University for three years. And in that time, I did see a lot of turnover of sexual harassment policies. And in that time, even though it was short, I, I did see the positive effect that training young people especially in that active bystander behavior can have Mm -hmm. not just around sexual harassment but around like bullying bullying and victimization Mm -hmm. kind of problems to do with exclusion racism I think it it's very empowering to teach young people that stuff yeah and often with these issues they start somewhere and if you can call them out early it can be really powerful. So giving people the tools to how to diffuse a situation in the moment, because often you'll be in a situation where someone says something really inappropriate and you don't feel like it's your place to speak up or you don't know what to say or you don't want to make the situation worse or embarrass anybody. But giving people the tools to know what to say and do in that situation can be really powerful because often calling it out in the moment um, Will make the person who is acting poorly realize their behavior and often they're so embarrassed they didn't realize how they were going to be perceived and they'll probably never do something like that again so it's really important to you know give people the tools to you know not to not just to be a bystander that doesn't participate you know doesn't laugh along with the joke or you know exacerbate it but to be able to call it out in the moment yeah, it's actually really interesting you say that. I Before we went into this most recent lockdown, I was um, out with my friends and some random stranger touched my bum. And usually I would just laugh it off and, you know, not just like whatever, kind of brush it off. But I was like, actually, this is harassment. Why would you touch me like that? That's really disgusting. And embarrassed him essentially in front of all his friends um and you know, yeah yeah <laughs> I I think that if I hadn't have this is a good thing about studying law if I hadn't have thought about it in this context and like had these like really um I guess enlightening conversations with people I wouldn't have felt empowered to do that the more you see other people do it or hear about it the more natural it becomes yeah exactly so, 
yeah yeah it's it's good yeah. moving from the very serious topics we've been talking about Amy during lockdown in all the spare time that you have between <laughs> absolutely killing it at Landers and raising <laughs> your two little ones um what have you been binging listening to reading and enjoying um by binging I assume you don't mean like all the baking that I'm doing <laughs> Um, that too. <laughs> I'd love, I wish I could say I've been reading lots, but I'm so stuffed at the end of the day. I'm not doing that much reading, but I think because there's not much else to do and I've been doing a lot of walking and a lot of cleaning the house, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts to try to break up the tedium of that. And a couple of my favourite, a good friend of mine, Sarah Grimberg, has a great podcast called A Life of Greatness. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, um, I have heard great things which about is, that. Um, always full of inspiration and insight. And on a, for, for a lighter note, probably anything, Mamma Mia or Mia Friedman, I love listening to all of their podcasts. Yeah. Um, it either, you know, they're often dealing with topics that make me feel really heard and validated or just gives me a good laugh and it's a good release. In fact, actually, both Sarah on her podcast, Life of Greatness, and Mia Freeman have both recently done a podcast with Ben Crow, the mindset coach. Oh, yeah. I actually was reading about him this morning. Yeah. Um, both really worth listening. Um, yeah. Great messages, great lessons, really good positivity, and, yeah, highly recommend them both. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. It has been a delightful conversation and you are so wise and we're just so pleased to be basking in the light that you give off in terms of your work championing women and, you know, just practicing law and basically killing it. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure and I only wish that I was, um, as bright and sparkly and inspirational and doing as good work at your age that I um, at your age because I certainly wasn't <laughs> so well done to you guys and I look forward to watching both of your careers because I'm sure they'll be exceptional whatever you decide to do oh, thank you Thank you for tuning in. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode.